Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 through 9. Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 through 9. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to your word this morning. Give us hearts that hear and obey. Give us a mind that will settle itself on your spirit rather than on the world around us. Teach us to have our focus where it should be. Teach us to listen to the voice we should be listening to. Because the the world around us screams. It's temptations. It's cries. Coming at us from all sides. But Lord, let us listen to your voice. Sometimes loud and thundering. Sometimes still and small. But always powerful and right and good. And so Lord, we come to you today. Asking you, begging you to feed us from your word. To teach us how we can walk more closely with you. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. This week... As we come to the end of this passage, let's focus our attention on verse 9 this morning. It begins with this statement, for we are slaves. Now I invite you to consider the history of Israel up to the point where Ezra is praying. Recall, remember back, they were defined by slavery. The nation of Israel was literally born out of slavery when God showed His power in bringing them out of Egypt. After 430 years in Egypt, 
Much of that as forced slave labor, God freed Israel through Moses using ten plagues. And when their escape was threatened, He split the Red Sea so that His people could cross on dry land. They had gone to Egypt, 70 men. They emerged from Egypt, over 600,000 men. 430 years later. But the important point here is that God freed them from slavery in Egypt. We also see that their actual freedom in the land of Israel, once the land was conquered, once the land was subdued, once the pagans were dealt with in the land, their actual freedom in that land was contingent on their faithfulness to God. Moses warns them of the consequences of worshiping other gods in Deuteronomy 27 and following. Joshua, in the last two chapters of that book, warns the people with the same warning and the same reminder, be faithful to God or He will remove you from this land. And then in Judges, we see in chapter 2 the description of the cycle the people followed repeatedly. They would disobey God. They would go away from Him. And then they would be conquered. And then they would cry out in repentance. And God would raise up a judge who would deliver them. And they would stay free for the remainder of His life. And then they would, get, they would in their ease, go back into that disobedience once again. Not just once, not just twice. We can list the judges in our minds. We can think of Deborah and Barak. We can think of Ehud. We can think of Gideon. We can think of Samson. And there were many others. For their entire history, sin meant slavery and repentance meant freedom until now. You can look down as far as you like into Ezra's prayer as we shall in the coming weeks if God is willing. And no matter how far you look, you do not see Ezra pleading for freedom. In fact, in this verse, he declares it plainly, we are slaves. No mention of the end of the slavery. No question of how long, O Lord, before You deliver us from this slavery. No plea to God even to make them worthy to be delivered from this slavery. It is this simple statement and the comments that He makes in the remainder of the verse that bring us to something new in God's redemptive plan. We understand that the Old Testament is the unfolding understanding of God's redemptive plan. It begins in God's good creation, which is quickly corrupted by man's sin. And we see in its pages and stories these critical pieces that the promised seed of the woman who would crush the devil in his works would one day come. We see the calling of God's people, be it Noah or Abram and the like, and their response through faith. That's another piece of God's redemptive plan. And then we see God establish for Himself a people, the children of Jacob, who was also called Israel. Now you may be thinking God's people were Abraham's, weren't they? Why are you just saying Jacob's? 
But just like we read in Galatians this morning, Abraham had another son, Ishmael. And God's promise wasn't through him. Isaac had another son, Esau. And God's promise was not through him. God's people were called through Jacob. Jacob, the unworthy. Jacob, the contender with God. Jacob, the called of God and all his descendants. We are then, once we see God calling a people to himself, he gives us the law, which displays for us the extent of our depravity and iniquity and shows us what is God's perfect requirement in holiness. When Israel was a free nation, government was based on those principles of God's law. Now, they followed it more closely at some times than others. Moses and Joshua were expected to adhere to God's law in, in, the, in the biggest part they did. The judges were called to renew the people's hearts to the law. And the kings were expected to keep God's commandments. And we see detailed appraisals throughout Samuel and Kings and Chronicles of how well each of them did. So why have I gone through this brief recitation of Israel's history? Because we see here in verse 9, the next step in God's redemptive plan has arrived. Because perhaps in their captivity in Babylon, the faithful Jews had held out hope that they would be restored to an independent nation once again. That Judah would be reestablished and would be able to rule itself. But the words of Ezra tells us that it is not God's plan that that happened. We are slaves. We are subject to an earthly king who does not recognize or follow God. We are subject to a government that exists for its own purposes and will not necessarily seek God's purposes A nation that seeks its own glory, not God's glory. A nation that can and does declare some sinful things to be lawful and some godly things to be unlawful. A nation fully capable of supporting God's people or persecuting them. Does any of that sound familiar? It should. Because from the time when Judah was conquered by Babylon, God's people have lived under secular rulers. And that's why I would classify this verse, Ezra 9.9, as the next step in God's redemptive plan. This is the point we realize that God is not going to free them from Persian rule, but leave them a subject people for the time to come. In the past, God had called His people physically or socially out of the world, meaning that His people would come to Israel if they they came from outside. Holiness, separation had been a political reality. But now God is calling His people 
in the world, still separate to Him, but not surrounded only by people under that same call. This new holiness, this new separation happens inside the person and changes the way he interacts with the world around him. And look at what Ezra says next. God has not forsaken his people in their slavery. Just because you are under an evil empire, just because you are under a government that is not worthy, doesn't mean God has abandoned you. We may sit here and feel rather comfortable in our country today while millions of our brothers and sisters do not live under a government that is even as lenient as ours. We are all slaves here on earth. And we see the culmination of this entire message in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 verses 15 through 19 where he says where Jesus is praying to God and he says I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Make them holy. That's what that word means. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now at this point, it, it almost begs the question, why God would do that? Why would He leave His people? But I think that asking why about God is problematic to the point of being sinful to ask that question often. And so I'd like to take the remainder of our time together today and ask instead, what does the Scripture say about God's purposes in this? Because God told us before the captivity. He told us during the captivity. And He told us after the captivity why He was going to structure His people this way. Because that's really the question to ask. What does the Scripture tell us? Scripture is the revelation of an infinite God to finite man. And we understand His ways and His thoughts only so far as He reveals them to us and no further. We should never allow ourselves to muse on the purposes of God in a manner that divorces from Scripture, utilizing our own flawed minds and hearts. That kind of philosophizing will lead us only to spiritual dead ends, quicksands, and traps. And so I ask, what does the Scripture say about God's purposes in having His people subject on earth to an earthly power? The first thing the Scripture tells us is that God is the God of the whole world and He has a plan. Isaiah 46, 9-11, through written hundreds of years before the captivity, says, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end... From the beginning. And from ancient times, 
things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. God's purposes were achieved through the nation of Israel while it existed. But it is a huge mistake to say, as some do, that if Israel had only obeyed the law, God would not have had to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. I've heard people say that. It is a grand misteaching in the church today that Israel could have been saved by their own efforts, that Jesus' death might have been unnecessary. But the Bible tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Savior from the Garden of Eden. God's redemptive plan did not contain the perpetual sacrifice of bulls or goats. Those were for a time. Those were not forever. Everything in the law, everything in Israel, everything in God's people, everything in the Old Testament points to one place, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And likewise, the time of the sovereign nation of Israel was passing as God made His call to the nations. In Isaiah 45.22, He says to the nations, Turn to Me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The second thing that we see, one of the things in Scripture that causes God, or that God tells us, is His purpose, is that He causes governments to rise and to fall. Job 12.23 says, He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nation, then leads them away. There is no power on earth that God has not put in place for their time. And in the past year, where many have observed with concern the expansion of the powers of our own government, this has become something important to remember. Romans 13.1, I would be surprised if everybody hadn't read that verse this year. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. I don't have the time nor the warrant in our text to delve into the questions and nuances of that passage. That's a sermon for a completely other day. What I will say is that Scripture on this point is clear. Obey the government when there is no clear sinfulness in the command. Strive to live your life in accordance with the laws of the government that do not cause clear sinfulness. And then, this may be important for some this week, pay your taxes. The third thing that I would point out is that His law, rather than being enforced by the ruler, is now written on our hearts. It's personal. You see, in Israel, it was like an incubator. 
Everybody in Israel was expected to obey the law of God. Everyone would encourage his neighbor to follow God. You don't get that encouragement from the world around us. Jeremiah 31 Beginning in verse 33, he says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days of captivity is what he's talking about, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What God is saying is that I'm no longer going to enforce my law through the government structure. That was for a time. That was for teaching. That was for training. That was for building up His people. Now His law is written on our hearts. Now His law is personal. God is in this moment in Ezra moving the law from the constables to the consciences. He is making a people who obey out of love and gratitude rather than out of compulsion. And in doing so, He has removed the excuses that some might have used for their disobedience and iniquity. They might have said, the temple is destroyed, we can't worship. They might have said the government is evil. We can't follow evil men. They might say God's protection for us is gone because He has left us in our slavery. But all of those are simply excuses because His law is written inside us. Likewise, if we are in Christ, we live with God's full revelation in our hearts. We above all are without excuse should we transgress His commandments. But because we still live in the flesh, and I could have taken it here, another earthly power, we are forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for every single sin. The fourth thing I would look at this morning is that He can use even secular governments to bring about His purposes. We've talked about this in Ezra before. What is the book of Ezra? If it is not a testimony to this very fact, God rules rulers. Even those who are evil, God can use them for His purposes. Perhaps the greatest statement of that is found in Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But we also see it in Isaiah, beginning in, verse, in chapter 49, verse 23. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust off your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Certainly we should pray for godly leaders and support them every chance we get. But as God's people, our hope is never in Washington, D.C. Our hope is not in the person who sits in the Oval Office or the party in power in Congress. 
We know as followers of God that salvation will come will not come from the secular government, but will come by God's hand through any means He chooses. Which leads us to the fifth thing. He will use governments to strengthen His people. Now I do want you to pay close attention to what I said there. To strengthen His people. Sometimes that is in a positive way. We see a litany of the things that God did through this pagan king in the remainder of verse 9 in Ezra 9 today. He says, He's extended us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia because sometimes it is the will of God that we are favored by the government. He says, He has granted us some reviving to set up the house of our God. God used the government in Ezra's case to help the healing, the reviving, the new skin, as we talked about last week, of the destroyed land to be rebuilt. In our day, the government still has some goodwill toward the church. Although with the partisan efforts of many churches and Christians, that goodwill is increasingly in jeopardy. He says that God has used the government to repair its ruins. Let us not forget that the rebuilding of the temple and the subsequent offerings of the temple were made by a Persian king. We should never rely on the government and its benevolence, but God may use the government to accomplish His purposes in His glory. And then finally, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Now I will say that if you have the King James Version, they have an unfortunate translation of that word protection. It translates the word protection as wall, to give us a wall in Judea and Jerusalem. And while that's technically accurate, I do prefer the translation we're using this morning. Because the confusion comes from the fact that the entire book of Nehemiah set 14 years after the events in Ezra. That entire book is about rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And here in Ezra, if we read the word wall, we think, well, was the wall completed? That messes up the timeline. But the wall, even the word wall here, does not indicate what we would know as a city wall, like the walls of Jericho or the wall of Jerusalem. The word wall here is generally used to denote a hedge around a vineyard. It's a short wall. Much more of a fence than a defensive structure. And so when he says to give us a wall in Judea and Jerusalem or to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem, that's what he's saying. God has marked us off because that is what the wall does. It marks the territory. He had marked out the land of Jerusalem and Judea and dedicated it, earmarked it through that secular government for God's people. Because that kind of wall marked a boundary. It staked a claim, as we Americans might say. 
And God had led the Persian king to that benefit. Now recall I said that God uses those secular governments to strengthen the church. On the negative side, these same governments that have been placed by God will sometimes turn on His people. God's people can also be strengthened through persecution. In the history of the church and around our world today, law-abiding followers of Jesus Christ have been persecuted for His sake, and that will not change. Even during the persecutions from Rome, believers like Tertullian made their pleas for peace from the emperor, offering offering their explanations called apologies, but not the kind where you're offering to change. And even these apologies, these explanations, are marked not by rebellious language or by anger, but wisdom, reason, and love in the plea of the case for the followers of Jesus who were in jeopardy of their lives. But know for sure that whether the government works for us or against us, God is always for us. Romans 8, 31-34 says, If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He also not, not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Just a couple things here. He asks, who can bring any charge against God's elect? That can be a charge before God or before earthly powers. But the answer here is that God is the one who justifies, who makes people right with Him. It is His effort and His work in our lives that justifies. And then He says, what if we be condemned? Who is there to condemn? The answer is that Jesus Christ Himself was condemned in our place and has been raised and will raise us up with Him. Our hope is solely in the work of Jesus Christ. So we do not fear the political turns or the upheavals in our nation. God is in control and is making all things for the good of His people. And then finally, the last point I would make this morning, His kingdom is not of this world. In His final audience and trial under Pontius Pilate, Jesus was asked if He was the King of the Jews. And we see His response in John 18, beginning in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to Him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose... I was born, and for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Is Jesus the King? Yes. His kingdom is not of this world. Our hope is not in this world. Our ultimate glorification is not in this world. We may be slaves to earthly powers, but our real allegiance, our loyalty is to Jesus Christ alone. Pontius Pilate judged Jesus one day. And one day, Jesus will judge Pontius Pilate. The sentence of death Pilate declared on Jesus lasted only three days. The sentence on Pilate and for all who reject Christ in this life will be eternal. Because God's kingdom is invading this world through the hearts of His people. Through the church that He has established to bring it into this world. Our entire reason for being as a church is to carry God's gospel into the pagan world around us. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us. But even more than that, break us. We need to hear your voice. We need to be called to your mission. We are trapped in these bodies of flesh, but one day we will be free. But our hearts, our spirits are already free because you have revived us even in this flesh. You have brought us to life where there was no life. You have placed within us a spirit where there was only death and corruption. You have brought us to yourself where we were once enemies. And so, God, we worship. We bow down before you because you alone are worthy of glory, of honor, of praise. And we will not fear what those around us may do. We are loyal to you. Not just above all. We are loyal to you alone. Let your Spirit give us utterances in those times of testing, in the times of trial that are sure to come. And let us speak with grace and love and peace even while others may hurl accusations, often false, straight back in our faces. 
We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.